Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I left a national newspaper environment where I was a desk editor, you know what I mean, and working. First editorial meeting was 6 30 in the morning. I live out in Scary, so I was taking a taxi every morning at about half, four or five o'clock a.m., uh, working up for the first issue for nine, um, then changes for second uh, edition at about one, and then doing overnights to about four or five, and then hitting the pub. Um, so it was, it, it was a relentless um, sort of um, toxic stress environment. Uh, that I felt if I didn't get out of it when I did, I would either end up divorced or dead. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's essential like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, learn some things you didn't know. Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast. It's the Keith Walsh Podcast. Give you energy like buck fat. And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast, yeah. I wanna hold your hand. For some reason, I've got that song in my head. It is... Someone just came in the door as I started talking. They started shouting. Charlie started, growl- started growling. Charlie, what's wrong? Anyway, I'll continue. Um, it is uh, 26 minutes past 10 on this fine Friday evening. It was a lovely balmy day here in Newbridge in County Kildare, as it was in Dublin as well. It was in Dublin today. The place was fairly buzzing. Fairly buzzing. Um, a lot of outdoor eating, drinking, uh, gadding about. And uh, it was nice to see. The only thing I will say... Um, and maybe this is from my perspective, having stopped drinking about a year and a half ago. Um, I I was walking past a particular pub called Grogan's and all their seating is outside. So like it's like as if they've turned the building inside out because everybody that's normally inside the building drinking is now outside the building drinking. And I don't think it's a great ad for drinking because like Grogan's is a great spot. I didn't I was in, I've been in there and um I'm sure I've been in there a good few times, but I didn't frequent it. It wasn't like any kind of regular haunt of mine. Um, you know, but you'd always kind of pop your head in or go in and have one pint stand at the at the bar or maybe, you know, one outside if it was a nice day. But uh, there's some interesting characters uh, in, the, in that pub, but now they're all outside drinking. And, you know, that's their choice. Then they're happy to, you know, just be boozing but it <laughs> some of them just don't they don't they're not great ads for drinking do you know what I mean they just look like either they shouldn't be outside and the sun might offend their skin and you know they just look a bit withered and you know uh 
it, 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 they kind of look startled. Like it's like I can't. What, what am I? What's going on? What am I doing? Why am I outside? I want to be inside in a snug, drinking pints away from the world. That's where I exist, not out here on the path with people looking at me. But um, yeah, I did just kind of notice how uh, wrecked a lot of people looked. Um, and maybe that's just because of the lockdown and, you know, it'll take them a while to find their mojo. Um, and maybe I need to be more forgiving. But uh, yeah, it did not look like the barfly life would be the best choice. Um lifestyle wise and longevity wise but we all make our choices and it's a free country and that's the great thing about living in somewhere like Ireland or you know it's a great thing about being free uh, being in the western world and deciding to you know drink for the afternoon because that's what you want to do or that's what you need to do or not and uh, you know live and let live that's what I say but I think I think that the that scene of because there was several tables of just lads and they've obviously gone to that pub for years and sat around their their table and you know and that's their ritual and they'll have their several pints of Heineken or whatever it is whatever the poison is um and that's and they're they're with their 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 friends their pals and they they talk shite um which is great but as I said they possibly that scene possibly belongs in the inside, behind frosted glass, you know, it's not a smoky atmosphere anymore. But you get my meaning, like somewhere dark, and and that's the kind of you know. But there, they, there they were out in the glaring sunlight, and it just it just struck me as a, an interesting scene, you know. Anyway, that's my takeaway from being in Dublin today. Let's crack on with the podcast. I have the book in front of me here. I haven't done one of these in a while. Um, because uh, as I as I may have mentioned, if you listen to this podcast, I started a new job about five weeks ago, and I just thought, well, I better focus on that. But in the meantime, I got the offer of um, interviewing uh, David DeBold, and I'm still struggling with the with the with the pronunciation of his surname. But I think it's, I think I've got it right, David DeBold. Um, he is a former journalist and editor. As he mentions, I won't get into the exact details of that because he tells the story quite well of what he did. And uh, he decided at some stage to become a stay-at-home dad. Um, and then quite recently he decided to write about his experiences of being a stay-at-home dad. And the book is called Diary of a Wimpy Dad. Um, let me just read a little bit about about the book from the book. A few years ago, David DeBold took the brave decision to give up a full-time job to be a stay-at-home dad. So he did. Um, thing is... There was already a stay-at-home mum, three hairy, monosyllabic teenage boys, and a pathologically cheerful, explosively hormonal preteen girl. What follows is a year at the cold face of parental ineptitude, a year in which David learns that helping to keep the well-oiled machine of a busy family home firing on all cylinders requires, well, oil and a machine. Um, so, yeah, it's a great great book I think at the end I described it as um, I said something like if Iggy Pop wrote a, a guide to parenting this might be it because I ex- I don't know what I expected I didn't really know David before apart from what I was sent but it, I knew it seemed interesting and from reading the book I thought oh this is good uh, and definitely where this conversation goes 
is quite surprising and he tells his stories quite well about his own childhood, his own upbringing, his own uh, influences, um, his own the people who cared for him, how that all came about, who they were, what they did. Uh, and, you know, I suppose this is as much about Definitely, this chat is as much about the book and about his his you know him being a father and his his him and uh, and his and his wife and and their parenting skills, but also in it as a journey. You know, he's obviously gone on a journey as well to as we all do in our forties. <laughs> um, uh, he's gone on this journey to kind of discover who he is, and I think it's only when you see your children and they get to a certain age that then you start really thinking about who you are and where you came from. I would highly recommend this book. David Diebold, I hope I'm pronouncing your surname correctly. I think I am. Um, And it's called Diary of a Wimpy Dad. Uh, Go and buy it, if not for yourself. Actually, buy it for yourself if you don't have kids, just in case you do. Uh, You don't need to have kids to enjoy or read this book. You'll definitely enjoy this chat. Um, buy it for uh, dads who you know didn't stop wearing the leather jackets or listening to cool music just because they came, became dads um, that's, that would be my recommendation anyway without further ado let's crack on it is the Keith Walsh podcast episode I don't know what episode it is but enjoy for the sake of um, clarity with the uh, parity with the book title you know but um, Dave normally Oh, David. It's normal size and mine's huge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting back a little bit. You're, you're very close to yours. That's very cool. <laughs> how, how, are you, how are things? How do I find you today? Um, uh, Tuesday is always kind of a bit messy, but um, um, yeah, we're all right. We're okay. We're doing all right. Uh, a few minor crises aside. Um, um, our college age girl is getting to grips with uh, suddenly being free to um, do whatever she's able to do this summer in terms of making a bit of cash for herself. You know what I mean? Uh, and we haven't been pushing anybody to do anything for like a year, you know, because we're like, you know, just let people, whoever's in the house, get through it, whatever they can. If they have to stay in the room all the time. That's absolutely fine. Now I'm kind of thinking people maybe should go outside, like, you know, Maybe once, uh, every now and then. Uh, <laughs> once a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I'm sort of um, embracing my teenage agoraphobia. You know what I mean? Um, I'm, I, I've been quite liking staying in all the time. I think we, I think we might have a lot in common here. Uh, but listen, we just. Are you happy to just keep talking? Yeah. 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 Let's just go for it. Yeah. Because um, I finished up working in RT about. I don't know, just kind of, it was, I worked in, I did a bit of work at the, at the first lockdown, but once, and then I just stopped and uh, I've been kind of, I was kind of working for myself and I started a new job in the last few weeks. So I'm, so I kind of had this beautiful time of kind of doing my own thing. I had a few side hustles, bringing in a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was hanging around the house a lot. Uh, what about the side hustles? <laughs> I was just, I was my own man, you know, uh, but um but then I, I just recently started a job and I'm, and I'm, I'm suffering from that sort of, uh, 
it's 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 all also unfamiliar and it's kind of a new yeah. area area for me so i'm i'm at the bottom of the the rung of the ladder at the bottom rung of the ladder and i'm just like ah oh, jesus and I'm, I'm dealing with anxiety work anxiety that i'd kind of gotten myself mm -hmm. unused to so how long at what stage did you decide i'm going to be i'm going to be stay at home dad I would, so I'd say it was about, um, I mean, it was way before a lot of people had to, you know what I mean? Um, uh, which is um, why I'm sort of flogging this now. I thought, you know, people, people should know. But, um, you know, all joking aside, it was about, uh, it was about almost 10 years ago when okay. I first left. Now the, the book Diary of a Wimpy Dad sort of, it, it is nestled sort of in the middle of that 10 years. It wasn't something I started like uh, taking notes for immediately because I didn't start doing, a, I started doing a column about being a stay at home dad um, about four years after I left. But I left a national newspaper environment where I was a desk editor, you know what I mean? And working first editorial meeting was 6.30 in the morning. I live out in Scary, so I was taking a taxi in every morning at about half, four or five o'clock a.m. Uh, working on for the first issue for nine, um, then changes for second uh, edition at about one, and then doing overnights to about four or five, and then hitting the pub. Um, so it was it, it was a relentless um, sort of um, toxic stress environment uh, that I felt if I didn't get out of it when I did, I would either end up divorced or dead. Jesus. No, no uh, word of a, of, a, of a joke in there. Um, and I mean, I was seeing marriages fail all around me. And I was also seeing people drop dead at the age of 55, you know. And I think, well, I guess I left 10 years ago. I'm 53 now. So I was 43. I, I was 43 and I felt absolutely and completely spent. I felt like um, there, wasn't a, there wasn't another job for me anywhere. And, and people were telling me, colleagues were telling me, if you leave, this job, this full-time pensionable position, you are not only an idiot, uh, not only will no one ever talk to you again, but you will be completely unemployable. And I would say for the first couple of years, <laughs> I believed every word of that. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and honestly, this doesn't quite fit with the comedy of the book. But <laughs> it's okay, that's okay. You see, you see there's, there, there's, there's comedy in the sort of cruise to self-destruction and there's comedy in, in how uh, inept, and this is where the title kind of comes from, Diary of a Wimpy Dad, how inept I continued to feel for, for years. Um, I felt I had uh, left a job that I, I'd been in for 12, 14 years. I, I felt I'd reached the top of my game, but that I couldn't go anywhere else. And that there was, it was only, I was so paranoid uh, I felt that there was, it was only a matter of time before I was um, screwed in some kind of way and, and put on the back burner or, or put out to pasture on some, in some bullshit um, back desk somewhere. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to get out while I felt I was in some way in charge of my destiny. And the best way I could do that was basically pull the pin of the grenade and, and, and run, you know? And that's what I did. I went home. So I suddenly found myself at home with, um, th uh, well, I guess when I first went home, it was two preteens and two teens, uh, where, where Diary of a Wimpy Dad picks up. I had three teenage boys 
and a, a girl that was just on the tween kind of cusp of being a teenage. So she was happy, go lucky child one second and explosively sort of hormone, hormonal the next. And I started to kind of see how even it, in, in the context of, of how uh, hopelessly qualified I found myself in, in, in as a as a as a father, having not been there for for the guts of twelve years, uh, I started to see uh, the the comedy of that a little bit, and I and I was able to flog that as a weekly column, and that weekly column did fairly well. It was nominated twice for a national newspaper award, and I I got an invite to you know whatever it is the mansion house, and I got to see my name on the big screen. I got a free steak and, <laughs> and I got to see my crushing defeat as, uh, <laughs> as, as my name wasn't announced and then get hammered uh, on the free bar. And, you know, and that happened twice and that was great. And that sort of also fed into, I think, <laughs> the, uh, the, the sort of role I started to paint for myself as, as, as a abject failure. I think what I actually had was a bit of PTSD, to be honest, from being in a, in a, in a very, very high stress environment for so long. You've, you've been in national media and, and you know yourself that there's a huge pressure on you to keep delivering, to keep, um, keep things fresh, not just fresh, but hot, uh, to be, to be uh, finding the new next big thing and, and, and not to come up with one dud uh, or, or, or everyone will let you know about it. You know what I mean? You're, you're constantly on center stage. To me, the best analogy was those old um, comedy acts you'd see on TV when you're a kid with these guys with bamboo poles with plates spinning on top, you know? And then they'd add another one and then they'd add another one and there'd be seven of them going and you're trying to keep the plates spinning. That's how, how I felt. And you know what? When I came home, I sort of felt the same way for a long time. Um, and, and all I had to do was try and chip in with the kids. You know, I was flogging, uh, I still flogged a few articles and, um, uh, then my wife and myself, um, took over a local little micro local, uh, community magazine in this little seaside town, largely supported by hospitality industry, uh, restaurants and little hotels and all that kind of thing. And that was sort of bread and butter, but I was a long way off the money I was making, like um, as a as a newspaper uh, executive, and, and that was fine by me. Um, and I think for the first while when I got home, I don't know if it was the same for you. Um, uh, I really reveled in that certain time of the morning where. You know, in normal circumstances, you would have been, if not up, you would have been awake and stressing and uh, getting a little bit sick with anxiety <laughs> at the thought of what was on that day or, or what wasn't because you, you, you only had so much planned already uh, or even planning like two, three days ahead. I'd wake up about seven or eight. Then when all that was over, I make a little sort of tube out of my um, duvet and listen to the sounds of the house as, as it all came awake, you know, the thundering around and people shouting because they couldn't find their school bag and, and you know, cups clattering, things smashing, the dogs freaking out and barking and attacking the windscreen as the postman came 
And I got into the rhythm of that over a couple of days. It was like recovery. It was like I was recovering from, uh, uh, you know, something that I had been knee deep in, neck deep in for so long. I didn't even realize it was toxic anymore. Um, to, but to come home and suddenly be part of that rhythm and to recognize that rhythm. And slowly I started crawling downstairs, uh, looking like a wreck in a hoodie or a band tour t-shirt from some band none of the kids have ever, ever heard of some alt country americana band from portland you know um in, in, in my baggy sweatpants uh and very slowly became part of that new cast of characters myself and that new cast of characters gradually became something i wanted to to write down and record i think as i started to realize that um, you know, everything is so fleeting. Um, in in national news media, and I was sort of more in features, so I was more movies, books, and music, and, and that kind of thing. But um, you know, big packages every day. Um, you don't sort of know. It's a more subtle the changes of the season. There's every, every Christmas, da, da da. You do the you know your your top ten lists, your Christmas quiz, all that kind of thing. But when it's uh, children growing into teens around you, and it happens really quickly, you start to see, I think, the uh, get into a whole different sort of rhythm. It's a, it's a tidal kind of thing, the rhythm of people's moods throughout the day. Uh, I started, to, I guess, I hate the whole sort of, I don't hate it, but the whole mindful kind of thing, because it, you know, but it's a bit of a hashtag, and a lot of people don't know what it is or even mean it, you know, but when you really think about it, just allowing yourself to live in the moment a little bit and notice what's going by. I hadn't done that. I hadn't done that in an office for more than a decade. And suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm able to, to, to really sit back and notice things. And then suddenly I started to get some responsibilities like the wife would kind of say, could you do that parent teacher meeting on Thursday? And I'm like, the what? Yeah, you have to go in and meet the parents and sit there and you bounce home a little plastic chair. You have a little list of all the classes and you write their little comments down. I'm like, really, you want me to do that? Look at me. No, I'm, I'm not exactly a great advertisement for my kids. <laughs> I, was listening, I was listening to Tommy Tiernan, uh, Tommy and Hector and Larita. They do a podcast and he was like. I'm not fucking doing the parent teacher. <laughs> he's like, he said, I fucking hate teachers. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I would routinely embarrass myself uh, terribly because, uh, you know, if they said something negative, I'd be like, what do you mean? What yeah. do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Oh, well, you know, she's not really paying it. What do you mean? Pay attention, you know? Uh, <laughs> pay, pay attention but, to what? What are you trying? Pay attention to what? You think what uh, you're teaching? You think what you're teaching her is important for life? <laughs> Let me tell you about life, Missy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I swear to I swear to God. I mean, I, I was the kind of dad that when I when when I finally did have the opportunity to start dropping my little girl to school, or when one of the um, when the lads were still in there, it was mostly the girl who was getting the lift in because she was the worst getting ready in the morning, but. I would apologize to her at the gate. I'd say, I'm really sorry you have to go through this today. I'm really sorry, but we'll get you through it. I made you a nice little sandwich there. <laughs> I have a I have a 12-year-old boy, and I think he knows 
that there's a chance that I might pull them out. I, like, I think they sense mm. if you don't agree with the school thing. And yeah. So they sense it. So he's like, I oh, fuck it. He hates school. I hate school. <laughs> I'm not going to school today. I'm not going to school tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> like me at lunchtime. He, he's not even supposed to bring his phone to school. I got a texture in the day the, uh, last week. Collect me. I hate it here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, your work is almost done. But, but I'm like, yes, you're right. But we just, we have to bring you in. We have to keep bringing you in. It's terrible. it's terrible. It's terrible what we do to them, you know. And and uh, and as I'd imagine, like yourself, I mean, looking at your CV, you're not the type of, you know, I mean, you're 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 you're, you're more rock and roll than. Uh, than uh whatever i think uh, we just have adhd or something yeah possibly yeah. I mean, <laughs> if i was a, if i was i'd say if i was a kid when i was a kid if i was a kid today I, they would have put me on ritalin or all kinds of drugs or something like that and i'd probably still be messed up um and i'm not using that sort of um facetiously i mean yeah i, 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 I mean it <laughs> I, I i probably would be would have been there with you uh and my family used to say that my sisters used to say that I, i'll probably end up in prison and i think uh, some, some part to be believed it but um but it is hard to be the dad when you're i'm not saying you're the cool dad but like no it, it's difficult to be sensible mm. but also hold on to your identity or something uh -huh. or you know to try and also tell them that you know what don't like fuck the system you know what i mean yeah. but but also you have to go to school mm -hmm. well you see i think for me uh when the kids get to an age where i can remember being that age I mean, I remember it really, really well. I mean, we start, I guess I'm, I'm not that old for having kids. I've been, I've, I've, uh, my eldest is 26. Uh, so I had kids. I started having kids when I was 26. Right. So you're, uh, you're starting young. Yeah. Started young, 26. Uh, and, um, and I think I, I tried to grow up a little bit too quickly when, when we had him and then regressing ever since. You know what I mean? <laughs> but um, uh, as soon as my kids started getting to that age, Sort of teenage, where I could remember really, really clearly what was going on in my head when I that sick feeling of going down that that school hall that sort of reeked of armpits and 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 floor cleaner, and um, you know that's and old sandwiches and old sandwiches, lockers full of wet PE gear, or whatever. You know what I mean? There's just, I mean, I think you're more conscious of that as well when you're th that age because you're senses haven't been dulled by years of abuse at that point but um um yeah i mean because i walk into a school today and i'm like geez this place actually smells kind of good what's what's the deal and the kids are looking at me kind of going are you serious you know but that's i realized that my brain has started to die um uh, so it is difficult to be well it's impossible to be a cool dad because you know everything you like is instantly uncool um and i've sort of struggled to, to sort of figure out when i want to introduce the any one of the kids at a certain stage of their development i want to introduce them to really cool music is the best way to play the most uncool music i can possibly think of and just leave the cool stuff kind of lying around because when i put it on they're like oh what is this you know, I'm like, you know, it's, it's really good. What are you talking about? It's whatever, Stones, Springsteen, or, you know, probably stuff I actually thought was uncool myself when I was a kid. What was I listening yeah. to when I was 14, 15? I guess I was listening to Undertone, Stiff Little Fingers, Clash, um, Specials, 
the beat. Um, and, and I don't think any of that's cool to any of the kids. Now, Jesus, I saw madness in an ad the other day. And I was like, is this some sort of spitting image puppet new series? It was bizarre. They're all ancient. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's really like, I remember saying to somebody, it's, it's, it's the job of it's, it's, it's everyone's job to stay looking as young as possibly as they can out of respect for the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. Because if I look at Bez and Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays now on Gogglebox <laughs> and the state of those guys, I'm like, fucking hell. Like, you, you know, you need to be more Mick Jagger. You need to be more, mm. you know, I, I, I expect you to stay younger looking. Uh, you know, if I see Ian Brown with gray hair and it's long, scraggly, and he looks like he smoked too many joints and uh-huh. that's just, I want, I want him to stay looking. I want, I want at some point them to do the Mick Jagger, discover yoga, give up the drugs and <laughs> stay young looking into their eighties. You know, I, I saw an interview there when there's a great little video interview. I'm not sure. It might be from one of Anthony Bourdain's shows, but it's him sitting there with Iggy pop and they're, and they look both look kind of old. I mean, Iggy pop looks really old, you know, but still really cool. And yeah. he's, got, he's got that really, really deep voice that's impossible to imitate. But and they're sitting there and they're eating shrimp and drinking. I don't even think they're drinking booze. They're, they're like drinking, I don't know, some you know, kombucha. Bourdain says, he says, look at us here. We're sitting here. We're a couple of guys. We're the age we are, and we're we're uh, we're eating some shrimp. You know, you know, who would have thought? And he says, what, what, what's your perfect day? He says to Iggy Pop. And Iggy Pop says, perfect day for me is uh, just going down the beach really early in the morning, Miami. No one's around yet. And you look at him to see and there's sparkles. Sparkles. Sparkles are good. And that for him, that was it. No one around, empty beach, sun just coming up, sparkles on the water. Iggy Pop. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like your man Bourdain was probably having a drink, and, and I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Iggy made a past where lots of men didn't make it past, including Anthony Bourdain. But uh, the um, yeah, it, 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 it's hard to. I can remember saying to a friend of mine that my daughter at one point was listening to Green Day or something like that, and he said something like, "He said, oh, you want to get her onto you want, don't want her, don't want her listening to that shite or something, you know." Uh-huh. And I said, well, that's Gateway. Green Day or Gateway. Yeah, yeah. You know, when, when they're young, Green Day are fine. You know, that's, that's, that's the kind of Gateway band you want them to listen to. <laughs> but w- would you have found it difficult being in the car and someone else when the kids are choosing the music? or? or mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. I mean, um, uh, especially if I'm, not, if I'm not concentrating, the radio is on. You know what I mean? Something comes on that uh, I subconsciously am, am just, you know, uh, the Pretenders, Hollywood Perfume. It's a great song, you know? And I'm pounding the steering wheel bah, 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 at, the, at, the, at the lights. I suddenly realize all the kids are just like looking at me. What is he doing? What, is, what, is, what even is this? And I'm, it's the Pretenders. What are you talking about? And they're like, what decade are we talking about here? And I'm like, shut up. It's still brilliant. <laughs> but even just say, even that, like tr- discovering that the 90s weren't just a few years ago and uh, I know like w- when you see these statistics about like you know um s- s- I saw something recently w- when when Smashing Pumpkins 1979 album came out we are now further away from 
from that from from the date of that release album than they were from 1979 when they released the album. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so, so if that was if that was 43, 42 years ago, right? So when when that came out, the music from 42 years before then was like the 19, it was like 1930s. It was like did it did. This was that was was that the punk of the 1930s? I wonder, you know, I don't know. It probably was, yeah. I mean, if you think of like we're in the 20s now, and if you think of the roaring 20s, like it was Mm -hmm. that was the sort of the they were the the first hippies, do you know? Well, because that that blows my mind that uh, that something as sort of uh, amazing as an album uh, as that when that came out, um, the difference, you know, it's the same difference. 42 years before that, what were people listening to? Who knows? Ver, you know, I don't Most people don't even know. Maybe there's a few lead belly kind of tracks that surface from the 1930s, I don't know, which are still cool. Um, but, you, but you didn't take the, um, you had a, an interview, like looking at your CV is just, uh, I don't even know where to start. Uh huh. From Stripogram. <laughs> Obviously, you ended up with an, as a national newspaper features editor, <laughs> appearing on stage with the Cure of Ballet. I might, I might have, you know, when I when I joined um, uh, national newspapers, I might have embellished my CV a little bit. They might not have known about the stripogram. But that's what got you the job. <laughs> when, when I left, when I left uh, school, all I wanted to do was um, go to acting school, and it was the um mid 80s so there was virtually no jobs around uh of any kind not even the kind that would support you in your flat while you're going to acting so i went to the dublin theater school and i supported myself for a while by being a stripping vicar for um a company called sounds singing telegrams they'd pick me up in a van in temple bar basically very dodgy looking. If anyone was watching, they're kind of like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> it was dodgy, though. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, it was dodgy as hell. Well, you know, here's the thing. They, uh, you get in the back, they'd hand me, they'd hand me the, the costume, uh, which they held, held on to, which was like a, a Victor's outfit with Velcro and a pair of colored boxer shorts underneath. And they would give me the piece of paper where I'd, I'd learn off the words um, to what, some personalized song that went to a, a cassette tape boombox playing roll out the barrel or something you know and they dropped me to this place and i'd go in climb up on a table uh, surprise everyone bless the room and then the guy would hit the deck and i'd sing this song while tearing bits of clothes off myself and get out back in the van they they dropped me back in the city center exactly where i'd been with 35 quid in my pocket you know what i mean that almost paid my rent uh, a couple of those you know um, so um, the Kira Ballet came to town um, to play in the Point, what was then the Point Depot. They were doing um, La Corsair for a week and then Swan Lake. And it was a big deal, a big Russian ballet coming to Dublin. And they advertised in the classifieds in the Irish press. I had a part-time job in the Irish press at one point working in the death notice section night, which was just running death notices that were being shared the Irish press over to the Herald and I picked up paper waiting for somebody and I saw this uh, classified saying they're looking for extras for the Kirov Ballet and I went along to the audition and the audition was a whole bunch of really serious um, really um, effeminate um, looking 
I'm allowed to say that I think guys, you know, because they were, um, this was the guys audition because they were ballet dancers at the time. They were dancers and they were stretching and they had the leotards on. They were doing amazing things with their bodies. I could barely touch my knees. You know what I mean? I was, you know, I was uh, only just uh, gone 20 something and I could barely touch my shins. Certainly couldn't touch my toes. And I was standing there with docks on and a leather jacket. And the director of the Kirov Ballet came in with a little Russian cigarette hanging from the corner of his mouth. And he just walked along the line going, Yet, yet, da, da, yet. And he said, da, to me. So I'm like, shit, I think, I think I'm in. And it, it turns out all he was doing was picking the tallest people. He didn't care whether he could dance or not. There's, there was no dancing required. It was the Carol Ballet. You're just there to sort of stand in costume at the side of the set for the big slave market scenes or whatever. But it was brilliant. Such an experience to see these guys jumping around in the air. Um, right in front of you, the best seat in the house. And as part of that experience, I, I got friendly with one of the character dancers, a guy called Maxim Niznevich, uh, whose um, godfather had been Mikhail uh, Barishnikov, uh, who was the star of um, a couple, he had, um, whatever, run away to the States at one point and was in these big movies like White Nights and all that kind of thing back in the day. Anyway, uh, he invited me to what was then the Soviet Union, and I borrowed money wherever I could, got over there, and then within a day, the pooch happened, the Soviet coup, and I was stuck there with no way of contacting anyone on the outside. I ended up there for three weeks while um, Gorbachev um, looked like he might be being deposed by hardline communists trying to get back in, get rid of the whole perestroika thing, and then they got overturned and when i left um leningrad was saint petersburg and the flag had changed that was a very strange three weeks and i've kept in contact with that guy um through the years uh, so my kids have met him um which is great because these stories that come up again and again at the dinner table at home um i'm able to prove to them that they actually did happen you know what i mean i, I think i still have the pair of boxer shorts from the stripping vicar some <laughs> crocodiles on but yeah my cv was very varied but the, that was the, the reason for that was that um um you did whatever came along in in the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s uh whatever what anything that looked like a bit of crack that you make some money from so we went to the states every summer i'm an american citizen by birth so um, that wasn't a big deal for me but my girlfriend needed the j1 and all that kind of thing and we'd go to a different place um, like everyone did, pick somewhere off the map, Newport, Rhode Island, I'd never been to. And I blagged my way into a cooking job, um, lied about my cooking ability, and ended up having to cook breakfast for Senator Ted Kennedy one morning. And he ordered something I'd never heard of at the time. It's a favorite now, huevos rancheros, which is uh, Mexican eggs. And I made the closest approximation that I thought was that thing because there's no internet or anything you couldn't just google it like you're just like okay yeah i know how to make that and about 10 minutes later this guy this goon came up to the little window hatch with the earpiece in the curly wire coming out of his ear the shades and everything and he said who cooked the huevos rancheros and i'm like um why 
And he said, because Ted, Senator Ted Kennedy wants them to know it was the best damn breakfast he's ever had. And I'm like, yes! I wrote that story up for the uh, Irish Independent um, the day Senator Ted Kennedy died. And it was probably the most ridiculous story around his death that there was. But the point was that, was that he kept the secret of my terrible cooking all the way to the grave. <laughs> he never told anybody. He was a good man underneath. He was a good man. <laughs> Great hair. <laughs> I'm interested to, to, to know what you're, as a father, where did you get your, who were your, who were your uh, parent, where did you get your parenting skills from? You know, like, what was your, when you were growing up? So what did you, so when you suddenly found yourself at home, with all these kids. What was I like, drawing on? To corral. Yeah. Where, where was your, what inspiration did you draw from? Well, what what had you seen a, before? It's a difficult question because I, I've actually had four fathers in my life. Um, I was brought up in Ireland by my maternal grandfather, uh, who was a World War II veteran. Um, he was a waste gunner in a B-17 flying fortress, 27 combat missions over Germany. And when he left the States with me under his arm, uh, changed my name to his name because um, it was, you know, I was his daughter's child uh, who was a teenager when she had me. He was a award-winning journalist on the Los Angeles Times, and he came over here to write a book about Dermot McMurrow, which is bizarre because we have absolutely zero Irish ancestry. I'm one of the few Americans, I think, that I have ever heard of that cannot find a drop of Irish blood in my family tree. So I have no grandma in Galway or Donny Gal or anything like that. Nobody. Um, so I think in retrospect that uh, Bob Diebold, my the dad that brought me up, um, came over here largely the same reason that I left um, national newspapers at around the same age was that uh, he had, he, he was burnt out. Um, there were several things happening in the States at the time. Uh, and this, this does go back to your question about influences and, and uh, on our behavior as adults and as parents. You know, I had people asking me, what are your children going to think of this? You leave in a, a full-time job, you know, uh, quitting. And without getting into the details with, with those people that would ask me things like that or tell me things like that, that's what my father did. He left the States in the early, in, in his early 40s, 42, 43, 44 years old, the early 1970s, and we moved over here. And it was only supposed to be a temporary thing. Uh, we were only supposed to be here for about a year or two. And in fact, we did move back to the States for a couple of months. And the, the story was he was in traffic, in Los Angeles, going back to work. And he just had a moment of clarity took the next exit, came back and said, we're not, we're not, we're not going back to this. We're going back to Ireland. And, and he never left again. He's, he, he stayed in Ireland, became an Irish citizen. My the maternal grandparents broke up, um, separated when I was in my early teens um, because my, the mother that brought me up, my maternal grandmother, um, never, never really took to Ireland uh, as much as, as dad did. So they're the only two I ever called mom and dad, my maternal grandparents. And I didn't know they weren't my real, you know, my biological parents until I was sort of, um, I, was, I was already growing up, you know. 
Um, my real mother showed up at the door one day. I was probably I was seven or eight, which sounds really which sounds really young still. But at seven or eight, when I, where I was growing up, which was sort of beside a Dalkey Hill, um, and it's not the Dalkey it is now, uh, but beside a Dalkey Hill, I had a key around my neck. And I could just go up and play around the top of the cliffs till my mother would come to the top of the road or mom would come to the top of the road and blow up a little police whistle, which meant it was dinner time. You know what I mean? I'd be, I'd be up there for like 10 hours a day. But anyway, which sounds really, oh, in my day, I was up in the hills to 10 hours. That's the kind of, the kind of <laughs> but, stuff that comes out in the moment when you're annoyed. But so um, she showed up and said, you know who I am? And I said, um, uh, my sister and she said no I'm I'm your actual actually your mother and that sort of played played out for uh, she stayed she'd come over from LA she was remarried or well she hadn't been married in the first place so she was married to a guy called Jack and uh, who I really wanted once I found out that she was my mother I really wanted him to be my dad and he was a lovely guy he worked out in Cavistons in Sandy Cove when it was still a fishmonger or just a fishmonger for ah Jesus, they were here for about a year and a half, and I think it really looked like we were going to be a little three family of three. And then I think you know my my real mother was still too young to take that on, and she just sort of disappeared back to, to the states, and I didn't see her again for eighteen years. Um, they separated. Jack got remarried, and he moved to. Uh, Bakersfield is an oil town in the middle of the desert, just north of sort of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, it's not in the middle of the desert. It's sort of an oasis in the middle of the desert. But um, he was not long after he had kids, he was accused of uh, Satan worship and child abuse in one of the biggest miscarriages of justice uh, in, in a town in the States in, in, in history, which became the stuff of a documentary film called Witch Hunt produced by Sean Penn and narrated by Sean Penn. So Jack, my almost father, or my, my, my dad for a year or so, um, was helped out in the making of that film and was one of the victims of that miscarriage of justice. So that all sort of happened too. And who knows? I mean, I could have been one of those kids that was taken away and put in care for a year while all that got sorted out and people were ultimately exonerated every one of them um uh it was all came down to false testimony where they were rewarding children for make for the, the more outlandish the story they told the more the reward uh, and there weren't any um um you know ch qualified uh, child care workers um, there just cops so that all happened so that was that's two dads now um, then I uh, hired a private investigator when I was uh, in my late teens. Uh, I moved back to the States with my now wife. Uh, we moved to San Francisco and, and I studied television production, College Marin, and I was working in a small television station called um, Channel 31, uh, well, sort of interning. Um, and uh, it was from that office that I got the call from the private investigator that they tracked down my biological father. And I, they, they had three numbers. I called all three of them. And the very first number I called, I knew it was him. I knew it was him the way he picked up the phone. He was like, um, yep. Yeah. No, he said, Bill here. And I said, Bill, 
Did you go to school in Pomona in the late 1960s? And he goes, nope, wrong guy. And he hung up. And I'm like, oh boy, that was him. That was the guy. So I wrote a letter. They got, they got him, hit me his address and everything. And I said, look, uh, I had gotten the phone number for the private investigator of the closing credits of an Oprah Winfrey show about um, Vietnam buddies trying to find each other. So the, the company was called Secrets of the Lost. So I explained this and I said, hey, you know what? I'm not looking for an Oprah Winfrey moment here. I have a kid now and I want you to, um, to know that. Uh, but I also need a bit of family history because our first child was born at 26 weeks and he was like two pounds and he needed a blood transfusion and they wouldn't take my blood because I didn't have family history on my father's side. That was a real sort of impetus to sort of track him down. He said, okay, look, let's meet. Um, and we met up at this roadside, really cheap, cheesy roadside diner. It was like out of a Quentin Tarantino film. Um, I went in middle of the afternoon. It was complete dark beads hanging down and, gaudy lights and waitresses with big slits up the side of their skirts. What can I get you, honey? And I went up to the bartender. I said, is there this guy from meeting this guy who's actually my biological father? And I spilled the whole story out in like about two minutes. And this poor kid behind the bar is a 22-year-old jock. And he says, wow, that's some story, man. I don't know. Maybe there's a couple of guys sitting over there in the shadows, but if you find them, let me know. I'll send over a couple of drinks on the house. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And then I heard this voice go, David. I'm like, Bill. And he goes, you don't look anything like me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he, he had shaved his head. He said, he told me because he wasn't sure whether we might end up in a fight. And he felt that if he shaved his head, it would give him the advantage because I wouldn't be able to grab him by the hair. I had a half brother who I've subsequently met. And I told him the story and he said, that's such a load of bullshit. He shaved his hair because he was going bald. But that's the kind of guy Bill was. Bill, as it turned out, my biological father was a, um, uh, a successful special effects um, supervisor and inventor and manufacturer of lighting effects for the motion picture industry. He had stuff used in Harry Potter Star Wars, Star Trek, and they continue to send stuff over to Pinewood. Um, and the next time I saw him, I met my half-brother was down at the LA Expo, or the LA Los Angeles uh, Showbiz Expo, Showbiz Expo, which was like a trade show, not for the public, just for the motion picture industry. So they've got people sitting there getting made up as aliens. And it was just for someone who was studying TV and film at the time, I was just like, it was amazing. I mean, buying Panavision hats everywhere and but dad or not dad geez did I just say dad authority and said Bill who was my biological dad mm. uh, but I never called him dad he um, he had a stall and I, I was sort of left there at one point manning it with awkwardly with my 16 year old half brother who, who's actually really cool and um, this guy came over with a big entourage and he said is, is Bill here and I'm like I just stepped away it's gone a bit I'm the Jacks or something. Was the Jacks. Oh, yeah. Okay, the Jacks. Hey, Bill's gone to the Jacks. And I'm like, oh, God. And he says, just tell him that um, James Cameron called by and that I'm using a whole bunch of this stuff on the Titanic movie. And 
just wanted to let him know, you know, and I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's incredible. I'm very happy to meet you. <laughs> I'm a film fan. Uh, but I didn't do that. That was what I was, that's what I was screaming in my head. Mm. So I eventually did get to meet him, my half sister, who, um, who he kept me a secret from for the next couple of years. Uh, we all went over as a family to Oregon where his house was. And um, he had sort of let his family in on his, his real history, little bit by little bit. And he uh, lived in a big compound with an underground you know, a basement cinema and Harleys, and, you know, the real uh, motion picture kind of industry life that you'd expect. It was Disneyland to me, certainly Disneyland to my kids, you know, um, a person with a, a real swimming pool in their, in their backyard and all those kind of things. And he spoiled us rotten. And I remember one day we took off on the Harley. He said, have you ever been on a, ever been on a bike this big? And I'm like, no. He says, uh, well, you know where to hold on? And I said, um, no. He goes, well, you can put your arms around me like a bitch or you can hold the handles on the back of the seat. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll hold the handles on the back of the seat. And we took off um, through Portland and across this bridge and into the country, into the woods and pulled into this Red Cross Center. And I'm like, what's this about? And he goes, ah, it's just, just a little DNA test. Just, just, a, just, a, just take a minute. And he'd set this whole thing up. He didn't really believe I was his um, his son. He said there was a lot of people hanging around at the time. So we both went in, got swabbed. And uh, it was the day before I was going home with kids and everything. And for the next 60 days while we waited for the results, I was like, you know, freaking out. Like thinking I'd spent my life to date trying to figure out who I was in relation to the father figures in my life. And whether he was one worthy of allowing my children to invest in as well, you know, all that sort of suspicion. Um, because he was sort of from a, a rough, reasonably rough background in Los Angeles and all that kind of thing, but he seemed to have made good. Anyway, the, the uh, DNA test was 99.999% conclusive and he called me up and said, if I wanted, I could change my name to McIntyre, which was his name. I said, no, you're all right. I think I'll keep my name. And we got to, got to, uh, to an understanding where I sort of realized he was more of a drinking buddy than a, than a dad. You know, I think he, he never quite grew up. He loved his toys. Uh, he had, the reason we had got separated was he had been a roadie with a band called Three Dog Night um, around when I was about two years old or three years old living in Los Angeles and while he was on the road my understanding of the story is um, that uh, he was arrested for marijuana possession in Texas and um, did two years in a state penitentiary and that's why we have been separated for so long as it turned out and I only realized this about 10 years ago when he died, uh, he had kept the fact that he had liver cancer a secret, even from his own family for about a year, year and a half or so until it sort of metastasized and he started having seizures. And his wife called me up and said, if you want to say goodbye to him, you better come over, which was the first I heard of it. So I got over the just in time to sort of say goodbye. 
and um, saw, saw him out with my half brother who subsequently Willie, my half brother um, has come over to Ireland to Scaries where I live every year since our dad died. And we've become very, very close over this. We've talked about it late into the night down on the rocks, see crashing in and, and come to terms with that whole reality of everything. What I had discovered two days after he died, a whole bunch of people started rolling in for the sort of party for him. This guy, John DeBoard, uh, who had been his best friend when I was just a baby and we got separated, he, he was now, or when I first met him again after discovering Bill, he was a um, um, uh, tour manager for, stage manager, tour manager for Bonnie Raitt. And, uh, but his business was um, mo uh, compact monitors for, for the stage. And himself and my dad, Bill, had uh, run a place called Pirate Sound in the mid-70s, by which time I was learning Irish in primary school. They were running Pirate Sound, where Zappa was recording. Uh, my, my Pirate Sound t-shirt that I sort of inherited, Zappa on the back. Oh, cool. Very cool. But, um, uh, from those days. So he, he'd been doing all that. And I said, what happened with the two years in the state penitentiary? I mean, was he really uh, criminally involved in drugs and all that? And his friend John says, don't you know the story? Don't you know what actually happened? John talked like John. John actually talked like, don't you know what actually happened? I'm like, no. Um, he said, you better sit down. He said, oh, you better take a blast on this. I had me a pipe. <laughs> You better take another blast and you better take one more. And he told me the story. I don't smoke anything, certainly anymore. I get too paranoid, but he told me this story that uh, Bill's brother, Dawn, had been a groupie. She was like in her mid-teens, 16, 17, and was on the road with the band too. And she got caught with the drugs and called up Bill and said, I can't do time. I'm pregnant. So he went down and took the rap and said, nothing to do with her. She's just a kid. She's going to have a baby. It's all me. I manipulated her into it or whatever. And so he went down, did the two years. Um, and But he found out pretty soon that she lied, that she wasn't pregnant. Um, she just didn't want to get in trouble. So he never talked to her again. And, and well, if he did, um, she certainly wasn't invited to his uh, his uh, the party for his life. But that was the story. He 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 hadn't been such a bad guy after all. Yeah. But I grew up. Uh, anytime I asked about my real dad, um, my maternal grandmother who brought me up, mom, would just burst into tears, and my maternal grandfather, dad, would say. He was a criminal, just leave it at that. So they never really got to know that he was not the guy that they thought he was. Uh, but- um, So you got to know that he wasn't I got the to bad know. guy after all. So these were three of the four influences. My maternal grandmother, um, mom um, remarried the guy called Don, who was uh, one of the nicest, loveliest people I've ever met. And we were lucky enough to be able to bring our children over to where um, he, they lived on the shores of Lake Michigan um, in their retirement um, every other summer for about five or six years. Um, 
for three, four or five weeks at a time. And I was still working on the newspapers. Because um, the other thing, you used to get six weeks off uh, in the nationals. <laughs> why, why would you leave that job? <laughs> I know. So um, we got to know him very well. And, and his, his thing was just um, absolute, um, um, just being a nice person. He had a little sticker on the fridge saying, just for today little poem just for today i'm going to be a better person just for today he wasn't religious or anything like that it was all just about respect you know he told the kids don't let the american flag touch the ground he's one of those kind of we're in real midwestern states at this point and he was barman in the local elks club it's like a private club for like uh, veterans and stuff so um so he he was sort of an influence on the kids as well so i think Bill, my real father, from the time that we knew him, taught us that life was short. Um, there weren't enough toys in the world to play with, even in even in into your adulthood. So seize every one of them, even if you couldn't afford them, and play. Play like a child into your adulthood. And, and one of the things that I learned from him was that to be creative, you have to sort of be a, a bit of a child. You have to let the child out. You can't suppress the child in yourself. Be a child. Surround yourself with toys, you know. I've since I knew him, I bought electric guitars and amps and stuff that I never would have allowed myself to do that in my, even in my late twenties, early thirties, because I thought I needed to be responsible and grown up and all those things. I think Don taught me that, you know, um, every day is, a, is another chance to just be a, a little bit better, to try not to lose it over something stupid and to, and to listen to people and, and try and give them a little bit of time. You know what I mean? So that sort of element, um, uh, my my maternal grandfather obviously was probably my biggest influence. We used to go hiking in the in the Wicklow Hills, and we spent a lot of time together. Just a just a, a very sort of stoic, rather distant, predictably, uh, as a World War II veteran would be, you know. Um, but um, um, whenever I asked him for advice, he'd just say something really like hard to figure out, like. Um, you know, tread softly and carry a big stick. I'm like, well, what does that mean? How does that help me? I mean, I'm in the horrors of some anxiety-ridden office horror of being under huge pressure. And what does that mean? <laughs> trying to figure it out. Too afraid to ask him. I didn't want to look stupid. But, uh, so, you know, all those things sort of by assimilation, I suppose, ended up being influences on my kids. Um, and influences on me and then by, by extension influences on the kids. We, we do have a lot of fun in this house. And, and I think um, I'm not a very grown up dad. Um, and my children in some cases are far more mature than I am. Our, our eldest, who was, who was, I guess, because we had children in short succession, they're all about a year and a half apart. The very first born, you know what I mean? He'll be, when he was five years old, we were saying, Zachary, grow up. Come on, take some responsibility. You know, <laughs> you're five. <laughs> In retrospect, kind of going, oh God, what were we doing? <laughs> so what we, what we, we created a bit of a monster now because yeah, uh, he when, he, when he's home, he lives in Brussels now. Um, but when he's home, uh, he'd be like, uh, what time did you guys come in last night? You know, it's pretty late. You know, everyone was asleep. And you, you were kind of being loud. And I'm like, were we? Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> what time do you call this? Uh, you know, I, had to, 
I mean, how does all that how, how does all that experience of you know of your upbringing how does that come into play then when you're standing in the kitchen and scaries and it's all kicking off and mm-hmm. what are your instincts and how did that how did you what's your parenting style how would you describe I've, it to people my, my parenting style might be kind of like guys chill <laughs> and that's it <laughs> how do you how do you view things like a chore like a, do you remember to put the bins out like, do you remember this, the small things, the simple, the day-to-day, you know? Yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty um, uh, well, well organized and sort of that, that way. You know what I mean? People do, you know, we're, 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 we're terrible at the sort of long distance stuff, you know, outside of our sort of terrible um, eyesight range, like cobwebs in the corners and, and little bits missing off the walls and stuff. People probably come into our house and go, Jesus, what the hell? You know, did someone, did you get this cheap because someone died here? You know, but the surfaces are clear and the, and you know, the cups are washed and the bins are out. I mean, the bin looks like crap as well. Bin looks like something we found in the ditch, but you know what I mean? We're, we're not really hung up on, on, on stupid shit. Like all I ever wanted was a house full of, you know, people, kids and their friends. Um, the more at the dinner table, the better. I do all the cooking every night. Um, I love loads of people at the table, lots of dogs. Uh, we had two up to recently and we, we look after people's dogs and we walk a lot of d- other people's dogs. They can't walk, the, walk their dogs, especially over the past year, sort of cocooning couples and stuff. And uh, there, there could be six dogs here some days, you know what I mean? And the place is just dog hair everywhere, you know? Um, you know, you, I'll, I'll, I'll drop a slice of apple on the floor and pick it up and just sort of blow it off and like, it's fine, you know? And we're not hung up on the bullshit kind of um, superficial kind of stuff. I, all I want to know is like, you know, um, who, who took the book that's missing off the thousand books on the bookshelf? You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why isn't that record back in its sleeve? And and who's going to be here for dinner? You know what I mean? Um, how many am I cooking for? Uh, we're, we're, it's a pretty laid back house. I mean, to our, you know, to our, um, uh, to our, not to, I don't want to use the word to our shame, but, uh, it, it is hard to get people motivated. You know what I mean? Like, you know, to, as I was saying at the beginning of all this, get, get people out of their rooms and out and trying to, trying to get out there and do stuff. Um, but my feeling is, you know, there's enough, there's enough pressure out there. People do stuff when they want to do it. You know, they don't always need, unless it's clear they're ill, either physically or psychologically. And, and, you know, they, they're in need of intervention of some kind. If things are, you know, but if people are generally healthy and they just don't want to do something, I don't feel like I need to be, neither of us are really good police people, you know, just live and let live, you know. <laughs> and here's the thing, you know, for all that, I've got the two eldest, everyone in this book, Die of a Wimpy Dad, were, were, were teenagers, mostly still in school doing their leaving when this book was written. Now two of them have master's degrees, um, one in computer science, the other one in creative writing, um, both Trinity masters. Um, the third is third year science in Trinity. And the youngest is now uh, just finished her first year in NCAD doing, uh, doing art. And she's recording songs, her original songs she's written. She's been in a band. 
and she's doing all that kind of cool shit that I wish I had allowed myself the time to to do before rushing off to grow up when I was in my late teens, early twenties, you know? Yeah, but yeah. I mean it seems like you experienced an awful lot anyway, but um and 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 obviously that's it's it's just I mean the book is great because I think that uh we're, we're so focused on it doing things right and uh it's great to see you know i i mean i i've been in the situation where you know and i love that bit where you're 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 making dinner and it's like and you, you the child is hanging around it's like if you're not something to be doing like she, you have your homework you have your homework to be finishing i think it was the chapter where you, where you were first told that you were a jerk <laughs> But, yeah. Yeah. but like what our own parents used to say to us like you're making the place look untidy you know what I mean I never, yeah, yeah, I never yeah, thought yeah. I'd be that person but uh, we, weren't allowed, we weren't allowed to lie on the floor and watch the telly you know <laughs> you had to yeah. sit down and watch the like, telly oh, or you weren't God. doing it right <laughs> yeah so the worst time uh, I think when I was a kid was when you Saturday morning you really look forward to the television that was on you know what I mean and your mother would choose that time to come in with the hoover and yeah. make you lift your legs, you know what I mean? And all you wanted to do is just have that little cup of tea and watch Swap Shop or whatever. But um, so I said I'd never be that guy. So so we don't do a lot of hoovering. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I've I've taken up enough of your time. I, we didn't really get to talk about the book, but I think what we've done is we've teed up the book. Everything in there is in the book in some way, in some in some sort of oblique way, or either either directly or indirectly. It's it, it's all those things are who we are in that book, you know? And it's mostly just about uh, that it's okay not to be great at being a dad. You know what I mean? And what is, what is, what is a great dad? I mean, like I've been talking, which was directly related to this about the four dads that I've had, you know, they, they, they weren't exactly um, running out to get a piece of paper and a pen to draw me a map. You know what I mean? They're just like, take, what you want from this this is who we are you know um they weren't trying to be anything they were just being sort of honest themselves and i the most honest thing i could do i think for my kids is go uh well i'm 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 crap at that but i can i can make dinner um you know what i mean don't ask me to help with that that homework or this or that or you know or or, or try to come to some kind of wise solomonic decision in in some conflict between you guys because i'll be like you guys figure it out you know i, I need to go figure out this wilco song on the electric guitar you know what i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> time but is it, short <laughs> there's a lot to be said for saying i could do a b and c i won't be this 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 yeah. and that's the you know, that, this is this is where i'd be and then and then but also look just to kind of wrap it up the kids teach us a lot as well and that's yes well that's it exactly that's, they do constantly, and and that it, there's a large part of that in Diary of a Wimpy Dad, which is um, you know the wimpiness is me feeling admitting that in the face of how smart and and adept that I've found that my kids really are, uh, they don't really need my help. You know what I mean? And and uh, you know and and it's okay to feel a little helpless in, in that kind of way. You know what I mean? Um, I still haven't got quite got to the point of admitting to my kids that uh, I'm riddled with insecurity and anxiety and, and have no idea what the future holds because I don't want to worry them. Um, I, <laughs> so they don't know how, how human, human I am yet. I, I remember the very last thing I'll say, uh, if you like, 
is that I realized a long time ago, maybe someone else smarter than me said it, but I, I remember articulating the fact that there are three stages, certainly in a guy's development uh, and his relationship with his father. And I look at my kids and sort of wonder if they, if they realize this too. The first is that you think that your dad is omnipotent. You think he knows everything. You go to school and say, my dad knows everything. You know, he's a God. The second stage of that relationship is that the, the, the terrible disappointment in realizing that your dad is human, um, which some people never get past. And the third stage, I think, is forgiving your dad for being human <laughs> and realizing that you're just a couple of guys trying to do the best you can, you know? And, and, and that's largely what Diary of a Wimpy Dad is, is admitting that I'm just a guy trying to do the best he can. And I think the, the, that the, the kids have done all right by it, you know? Yeah. Well, look, if Iggy Pop was to write a parenting book, this might be it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> quote you on that. Yeah, of course you can, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'll give all the details in the in the preamble and the, and the postamble and get people to buy it <laughs> and, and get the word out there. Uh, it was a really a real pleasure talking to you, David. Hey, thanks, uh, man. And uh, listen, best of luck with everything. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say. I, there was so many... <laughs> so many tangents. Uh, tangents I, I want to trip there. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. I wanted. I wanted to ask you so much more, and there's so much. There's so much more there. I'm, I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether okay, we can do this again. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe there's a part two in this, David. I'll be in touch. Well, there you go. Yeah, there you go, Iggy Pop, the the Irish Iggy Pop, David Diebold, uh, Die of a Wimpy Dad, and uh, I I can. I can only tell you about it. I can't drive you to the shop to buy it, but um, I think you should. It's available in all good bookstores. You'll find it online. Uh, it is also available as an ebook. Uh, it is published by Monument Media. It says here a Monument Media Press original um, autobiography slash humor. It says over the barcode and uh, cover illustration by. Millie Baring, which worth uh, is worth a mention as well. Nice little uh, illustrations there on as well. Um, so there you go. Thank you very much to David. Thank you very much to Mon Monument Media for uh, for letting me talk about your book and for publishing this book. Go and buy it if you're a dad. If you're hoping to be a dad, if you were a dad, if you know any dads, if you like a bit of a laugh, uh, if you enjoyed his stories, any of those things, go and buy it. Search it out. Seek it. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, that's kind of it. I just wonder, should I just, because I know he's on the social medias. I should have had this prepared, but, you know, you know at this stage how this works. Um, I just kind of, uh, hang on, do I, I don't know whether to, and this is not very professional. There you go. David, uh, at author diebold that's his instagram no that's his twitter at author diebold um so you'll find him there give him a follow and you'll be able to find all the details from the likes of monument media press and uh it was a uh, market plunk of pr set this up as well i wonder is he on um instagram let me just do this live this is so professional can i just I feel like that could be it there. 
There's a lot of David Diebels, and that's probably not it. Anyway, I don't think he is. Maybe he is. If you follow him on Twitter, he'll be able to tell you whether he's on Instagram. I think that's the best way to do it. Um, there you go. That's it. I gotta go. I gotta wrap it up. Go and buy the book. Thanks very much for your time. What else can I say? I'm out of practice. But uh, thank you very much for listening. Thanks uh, to for always listening. I've got a nice core of OGs, you know, the original listeners that always listen to them. And uh, it's nice to have a certain, you know, few hundred that subscribe. And as soon as you put one out, it's, you know, you, you you can see that there's like three, four, five hundred people <laughs> that maybe either just have it on their phone, but maybe they listen to it. And uh, it's always good. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to Acast as always. And uh, this is par- part of the Acast network. Um, if you like the podcast, do go back and listen to, I think I'm up to, I think this is 105, who knows, could be 106. Um, so go back and listen to the many, many tens of podcasts we've done so far. And uh, yeah, mind yourself, take it easy. If you want to email, you can uh, email keithwatchpod at gmail.com. That's it for me. Gotta go. Goodbye. See you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.